false conversion by George Whitfield, 1714 through 1771. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Acts 9.22 It is an undoubted truth, however it may seem a paradox to natural men, that whosoever will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And therefore it is very remarkable that our blessed Lord in his glorious Sermon on the Mount, after he had been pronouncing those blessed who were poor in spirit, meek, pure in heart, and such like, immediately adds and spends no less than three verses in this beatitude. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. No one ever was or ever will be endowed with the aforementioned graces in any degree, but he will be persecuted for it in a measure. There is an irreconcilable enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and if we are not of the world, but show by our fruits that we are of the number of those whom Jesus Christ has chosen out of the world, for that very reason the world will hate us. As this is true of every particular Christian, so it is true of every Christian church in general. For some years past, we have heard but little of a public persecution. Why? Because but little of the power of godliness has prevailed amongst all denominations. The strong man, armed, has had full possession of most professors' hearts, and therefore he has let them rest in a false peace. But we may assure ourselves, when Jesus Christ begins to gather in his elect in any remarkable manner and opens an effectual door for preaching the everlasting gospel, persecution will flame out and Satan and his emissaries will do their utmost, though all in vain, to stop the work of God. Thus it was in the first ages, thus it is in our days. And thus it will be, till time shall be no more. Christians and Christian churches must then expect enemies. Our chief concern should be to learn how to behave towards them in a Christian manner. For unless we take good heed to ourselves, we shall embitter our spirits and act unbecoming the followers of that Lord, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, and as a lamb, before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But what motive shall we make use of to bring ourselves to this blessed lamb-like temper? Next to the immediate operation of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts, I know of no consideration more conducive to teach us long-suffering towards our most bitter persecutors than this, that for all that we know to the contrary, some of those very persons who are now persecuting may be chosen from all eternity by God, and hereafter called in time to edify and build up the church of Christ. 
the persecutor saw, mentioned in the words of the text, and whose conversion, God willing, I propose to treat of in the following discourse, is a noble instance of this kind. I say a persecutor, and that a bloody one, for see how he is introduced in the beginning of this chapter. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of our Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And Saul, yet breathing out, this implies that he had been a persecutor before, to prove which we need only look back to the seventh chapter, where we shall find him so very remarkably active at Stephen's death that the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. He seems, though young, to be in some authority. Perhaps for his zeal against the Christians, he was preferred in the church and was allowed to sit in the great council or Sanhedrin. For we are told, Acts 8.1, that Saul was consenting unto his death. And again, at verse 3, he is brought in as exceeding all in his opposition. For thus speaks the evangelist. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. One would have imagined that this should have satisfied, at least abated the fury of this young zealot. No, being exceedingly mad against them, as he himself informs Agrippa, and having made havoc of all in Jerusalem, he now is resolved to persecute the disciples of the Lord, even to strange cities, and therefore yet breathing out threatening. Breathing out. The words are very emphatical and expressive of his bitter enmity. It was as natural to him now to threaten the Christians as it was for him to breathe. He could scarcely speak, but it was some threatenings against them. Nay, he not only breathed out threatenings, but slaughter also. And those who threaten would also slaughter, if it were in their power, against the disciples of the Lord. Insatiable, therefore, as hell, finding he could not refute or stop the Christians by force of argument, he is resolved to do it by force of arms, and therefore went to the high priest, for there never was a persecution yet without a high priest at the head of it and desired of him letters issued out of his spiritual court to the synagogues or ecclesiastical courts at Damascus, giving him authority, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem, I suppose to be arraigned and condemned in the high priest's court. Observe how he speaks. To the Christians. Luke, who wrote the Acts, calls them disciples of the Lord, and Saul styles them men and women of this way. I doubt not, but he represented them as a company of upstart enthusiasts. 
that had lately gotten into a new method or way of living that would not be content with temple service, but they must be righteous overmuch and have their private meetings or conventicles and break bread, as they called it, from house to house to the great disturbance of the established clergy and to the utter subversion of all order and decency. I do not hear that the high priest makes any objection. No, he was as willing to grant letters as Saul was to ask them, and wonderfully pleased within himself to find he had such an active zealot to employ against the Christians. Well then, a judicial process is immediately issued out with the high priest's seal affixed to it. And now, methinks, I see the young persecutor finely equipped and pleasing himself with thoughts how triumphantly he should ride back with men and women of this way, dragging after him to Jerusalem. What a condition may we imagine the poor disciples at Damascus were in at this time. No doubt they had heard of Saul's imprisoning and making havoc of the saints at Jerusalem, and we may well suppose were apprised of his design against them. I am persuaded this was a growing because a trying time with these dear people. Oh, how did they wrestle with God in prayer, beseeching Him either to deliver them from or give them grace sufficient to enable them to bear up under the fury of their persecutors. The high priest, doubtless, with the rest of his reverend brethren, flattered themselves that they should now put an effectual stop to this growing heresy and waited with impatience for Saul's return. But he that sitteth in heaven laughs them to scorn. The Lord has them in derision. And therefore, verse 3, as Saul journeyed and came even near unto Damascus, perhaps to the very gates, our Lord permitting this, to try the faith of his disciples, and more conspicuously, to baffle the designs of his enemies. Suddenly, at midday, as he acquaints Agrippa, there shined round about him a light from heaven, a light brighter than the sun. And he fell to the earth, why not into hell? And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The word is doubled, Saul, Saul, like that of our Lord to Martha, 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 or the prophet, O earth, earth, earth. Perhaps these words came like thunder to his soul, that they were spoken audibly. We are assured from verse 7, his companions heard the voice. Our Lord now arrests the persecuting zealot, calling him by name. For the word never does us good till we find it spoken to us in particular. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Put the emphasis upon the word why. What evil have I done? Put it upon the word persecutest. Why persecutest? I suppose Saul thought he was not persecuting. No, he was only putting the laws of the ecclesiastical court into execution. 
But Jesus, whose eyes are as a flame of fire, saw through the hypocrisy of his heart that notwithstanding his specious pretenses, all this proceeded from a persecuting spirit and secret enmity against God. And therefore says, Why persecutest thou me? Put the emphasis upon the word me. Why persecutest thou me? Alas, Saul was not persecuting Christ, was he? He was only taking care to prevent innovations in the church and bringing a company of enthusiasts to justice who otherwise would overturn the established constitution but Jesus says why persecutest thou me for what is done to Christ's disciples touches the apple of his eye and they that persecute the followers of our Lord would persecute our Lord himself were he again to come and tabernacle amongst us I do not find that Saul gives any reason why he did persecute. No, he was struck dumb, as every persecutor will be, when Jesus Christ puts the same question to them at the terrible day of judgment. But being pricked at the heart, no doubt with a sense not only of this, but of all his other offenses against the great God, he said, verse 5, Who art thou, Lord? See how soon God can change the heart and the voice of his most bitter enemies. Not many days ago, Saul was not only blaspheming Christ himself, but as much as in him lay, compelling others to blaspheme also. But now he who before was an impostor is called Lord. Who art thou, Lord? This admirably points out the way in which God's Spirit works upon the heart. It first powerfully convinces of sin and of our damnable state, and then puts us upon inquiring after Jesus Christ. Saul, being struck to the ground or pricked to the heart, cries out after Jesus, Who art thou, Lord? As many of you that were never so far made sensible of your damnable state as to be made feelingly to seek after Jesus Christ were never yet truly convicted by, much less converted to God. May the Lord who struck Saul effectually now strike all my Christless hearers and set them upon inquiring after Jesus as their all in all. Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Never did anyone inquire truly after Jesus Christ, but Christ made a saving discovery of himself to his soul. It should seem our Lord appeared to him in person, for Ananias afterwards says, The Lord who appeared to thee in the way which thou camest. Though this may not only imply Christ's meeting him in the way, it is not much matter. It is plain. Christ here speaks to him and says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is remarkable how our Lord takes to himself the name of Jesus. 
for it is a name in which he delights. I am Jesus, a Savior of my people, both from the guilt and power of their sins. A Jesus whom thou persecutest. This seems to be spoken to convince Saul more and more of his sin, and I doubt not, but every word was sharper than a two-edged sword, and came like so many daggers to his heart. Oh, how did these words affect him? A Jesus, a Savior, and yet I am persecuting him. This strikes him with horror, but then the word Jesus, though he was a persecutor, might give him some hope. However, our dear Lord, to convince Saul that he was to be saved by grace, and that he was not afraid of his power and enmity, tells him, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. As much as to say, though he was persecuting, yet he could not overthrow the church of Christ. For he would sit as king upon his holy hill of Zion. The malice of man or devils should never be able to prevail against him. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Verse 6. Those who think Saul had a discovery of Jesus made to his heart before think that this question is the result of his faith and that he now desires to know what he shall do out of gratitude for what the Lord had done for his soul. In this sense it may be understood, and I have made use of it as an instance to prove that faith will work by love. But perhaps it may be more agreeable to the context if we suppose that Saul had only some distant discovery of Christ made to him and not a full assurance of faith. For we are told he trembling and astonished, trembling at the thought of his persecuting a Jesus and astonished at his own vileness and the infinite condescension of this Jesus cries out, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Persons under soul trouble and sore conviction would be glad to do anything or comply on any terms to get peace with God. Arise, says our Lord, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. And here we will leave Saul for a while and see what is become of his companions. For what shall we say? God is a sovereign agent. His sacred spirit bloweth when and where it listeth. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Saul is taken, but as far as we know to the contrary, his fellow travelers are left to perish in their sins. For we are told, verse 7, that the men who journeyed with him stood indeed speechless and hearing a confused voice. I say a confused voice, for so the word signifies, and must be so interpreted in order to reconcile it with Acts 22.9, where Saul, giving an account of these men, tells Agrippa, They heard not the voice of him that spake to me. They heard a voice 
a confused noise, but not the articulate voice of him that spake to Saul, and therefore remained unconverted. For what are all ordinances, all, even the most extraordinary dispensations of providence, without Christ speaking to the soul in them? Thus it is now under the word preached. Many, like Saul's companions, are sometimes so struck with the outgoings of God appearing in the sanctuary that they even stand speechless. They hear the preacher's voice, but not the voice of the Son of God, who perhaps at the same time is speaking effectually to many other hearts. This I have known often. And what shall we say to these things? Oh, the depth of the sovereignty of God. It is past finding out. Lord, I desire to adore what I cannot comprehend. Even so, Father, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. But to return to Saul. The Lord bids him arise and go into the city, and we are told, verse 8, that Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, for he was so overpowered with the greatness of the light that shone upon them that he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, that very city which was to be the place of his executing or imprisoning the disciples of the Lord. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. But who can tell what horrors of conscience, what convulsion of soul, what deep and pungent convictions of sin he underwent during these three long days? It was this that took away his appetite, for who can eat or drink when under a sense of the wrath of God for sin? And being to be greatly employed hereafter, he must be greatly humbled now. Therefore the Lord leaves him three days groaning under the spirit of bondage and buffeted, no doubt, with the fiery darts of the devil, that being tempted like unto his brethren, he might be able hereafter to succor those that were tempted. Had Saul applied to any of the blind guides of the Jewish church under these circumstances, they would have said he was mad or going beside himself, as many carnal teachers and blind Pharisees now deal with. And so more and more distressed poor souls laboring under awakening convictions of their damnable state But God often, at our first awakenings, visits us with sore trials, especially those who are, like Saul, to shine in the church and to be used as instruments in bringing many sons to glory. Those who are to be highly exalted must first be deeply humbled, and this I speak for the comfort of such who may be now groaning under the spirit of bondage and perhaps like Saul, can neither eat nor drink. 
for I have generally observed that those who have had the deepest convictions have afterwards been favored with the most precious communications and enjoyed most of the divine presence in their souls. This was afterwards remarkably exemplified in Saul, who was three days without sight and neither did eat nor drink. But will the Lord leave his poor servant in this distress? No. His Jesus, though Saul persecuted him, promised, and he will perform that it should be told him what he must do. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and unto him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. What a holy familiarity is there between Jesus Christ and regenerate souls. Ananias had been used to such love visits and therefore knew the voice of his beloved. The Lord says, Ananias. Ananias says, Behold, I am here, Lord. Thus it is that Christ now, as well as formerly, often talks with his children at sundry times, and after diverse manners, as a man talketh with his friend. But what has the Lord to say to Ananias? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. Verse 11. See here for your comfort, O children of the Most High God, what notice Jesus Christ takes of the street and the house where his own dear servants lodge. For behold, he prayeth. But why is this ushered in with the word, Behold? What? Was it such a wonder to hear that Saul was praying? Why, Saul was a Pharisee, and therefore, no doubt, fasted and made long prayers. And since we are told that he profited above many of his equals, I doubt not, but he was taken notice of for his gift in prayer. And yet it seems that before these three days, Saul never prayed in his life. And why? because before these three days he never felt himself a condemned creature. He was alive in his own opinion, because without a knowledge of the spiritual meaning of the law, he felt not a want of, and therefore before now, cried not after Jesus. And consequently, though he might have said or made a prayer, as many Pharisees do in these days, he never uttered a prayer. But now behold, he prayed indeed, and this was urged as one reason why he was converted. None of God's children, as one observes, come into the world stillborn. Prayer is the very breath of the new creature, and therefore, if we are prayerless, we are Christless. 
if we never had the spirit of supplication. It is a sad sign that we never had the spirit of grace in our souls. And you may be assured you never did pray unless you have felt yourselves sinners and seen the want of Jesus to be your Savior. May the Lord, whom I serve in the gospel of his dear Son, prick you all to the heart, and may it be said of you all as it was of Saul. Behold, they pray. The Lord goes on to encourage Ananias to go to Saul, says he, verse 12, For he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias, coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. So that though Christ converted Saul immediately by himself, yet he will carry on the work thus begun by a minister. Happy they who under soul troubles have such experienced guides and as well acquainted with Jesus Christ as Ananias was. You that have such, make much of and be thankful for them. And you who have them not, trust in God. He will carry on his own work without them. Doubtless, Ananias was a good man, but shall I commend him for his answer to our Lord? I commend him not. For, says he, verse 13, Lord. I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call upon thy name. I fear this answer proceeded from some relics of self-righteousness as well as infidelity that lay undiscovered in the heart of Ananias. Arise, saith our Lord, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. One would think this was sufficient to satisfy him, but, says Ananias, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. He seems to speak of him with much contempt, for even good men are apt to think too contemptuously of those who are yet in their sins. How much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call upon thy name. And what then, Ananias? Is anything too hard for the Lord who made thee to differ? Could not he who converted thee convert him also? Surely Ananias here forgets himself, or perhaps fears. Lest this man who had authority from the chief priests to bind all that call upon Christ's name should bind him also if he went unto him. But the Lord silences all objections with a go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Here God stops the mouth immediately by asserting his 
sovereignty and preaching to him the doctrine of election and the frequent conversion of notorious sinners to God to me is one of great proof amongst a thousand others of that precious but too much exploded and sadly misrepresented doctrine of God's electing love for whence is it that such are taken whilst thousands not near so vile die senseless and stupid all the answer that can be given is they are chosen vessels go thy way says God for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake Observe what a close connection there is between doing and suffering for Christ. If any of my brethren in the ministry are present, let them hear what preferment we must expect if we are called out to work remarkably for God. Not great prebenderies or bishoprics, but great sufferings for our Lord's name's sake. These are the fruits of our labor. He that will not contentedly suffer great things for preaching Christ is not worthy of him. Suffering will be found to be the best performance when we are called to give an account of our ministry at the great day. I do not hear that Ananias quarreled with God concerning the doctrine of election. No, oh that all good men would in this learn of him. He went his way and entered into the house and put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Just now it was this man. Now it is Brother Saul. It is no matter what a man has been if he be now a Christian. The same should be our brother, our sister, and mother. God blots out every converse transgressions as with a thick cloud, and so should we. The more vile a man has been, the more should we love him when believing in Christ, because Christ will be more glorified on his behalf. I doubt not but Ananias was wonderfully delighted to hear that so remarkable a persecutor was brought home to God. I am persuaded he felt his soul immediately united to him by love, and therefore addresses him not with thou persecutor, thou murderer, that camest to butcher me and my friends, but brother Saul. It is remarkable that the primitive Christians much use the word brother and brethren. I know it is a term now much in reproach, but those who despise it, I believe, would be glad to be of our brotherhood when they see us sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. At this time, we may suppose, he laid his hands upon him. See the consequences. 
immediately. There fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received a sight forthwith. Verse 18. Not only bodily, but spiritual sight. He emerged, as it were, into a new world. He saw and felt, too, things unutterable. He felt a union of soul with God. He received the spirit of adoption. He could now, with a full assurance of faith, cry, Abba, Father. Now was he filled with the Holy Ghost, and had the love of God shed abroad in his heart. Now were the days of his mourning ended. Now was Christ formed in his soul. Now he could give men and devils the challenge, knowing that Christ had justified him. Now he saw the excellence of Christ, and esteemed him the fairest among ten thousand. You only know how to sympathize with the apostle in his joy, who after a long night of bondage have been set free by the Spirit, and have received joy in the Holy Ghost. May all that are now mourning, as Saul was, be comforted in like manner. The scales, then, are now removed from the eyes of Saul's mind. Ananias has done that for him under God. He must now do another office, baptize him, and so receive him into the visible church of Christ. A good proof to me of the necessity of baptism where it may be had. For I find here, as well as elsewhere, that baptism is administered even to those who had received the Holy Ghost. Saul was convinced of this, and therefore arose and was baptized. And now it is time for him to recruit the outward man, which by three days' abstinence and spiritual conflicts had been much impaired. We are therefore told, verse 19, when he had received meat, he was strengthened. But oh, with what comfort did the apostle now eat his food. I am sure it was with singleness. I am persuaded also with gladness of heart. And why? He knew that he was reconciled to God, and for my own part, did I not know how blind and flinty our hearts are by nature? I should wonder how anyone could eat even his common food with any satisfaction who has not some well-grounded hope of his being reconciled to God." Our Lord intimates thus much to us, for in his glorious prayer, after he has taught us to pray for our daily bread, immediately adds that petition, Forgive us our trespasses, as though our daily bread would do us no service unless we were sensible of having the forgiveness of our sins. To proceed. Saul hath received meat, and is strengthened, and whither will he go now? To see the brethren. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples that were at Damascus. If we know and love Christ, we shall also love and desire to be acquainted with the brethren of Christ. We may generally know a man by his company. And though all are not saints that associate with saints, for tares will be always springing up amongst 
the wheat till the time of harvest. Yet, if we never keep company, but are shy and ashamed of the despised children of God, it is a certain sign we have not yet experimentally learned Jesus or received him into our hearts. My dear friends, be not deceived. If we are friends to the bridegroom, we shall be friends to the children of the bridegroom. Saul, as soon as he was filled with the Holy Ghost, was certain days with the disciples that were at Damascus. But who can tell what joy these disciples felt when Saul came amongst them? I suppose Holy Ananias introduced him. Methinks I see the once persecuting zealot when they came to salute him with a holy kiss, throwing himself upon each of their necks, weeping over them with floods of tears and saying, Oh, my brother, oh, my sister, can you forgive me? Can you give such a wretch as I the right hand of fellowship who intended to drag you behind me? bound unto Jerusalem. Thus I say we may suppose Saul addressed himself to his fellow disciples, and I doubt not, but they were as ready to forgive and forget as Ananias was, and saluted him with the endearing title of Brother Saul. Lovely was this meeting, so lovely that it seemed Saul continued certain days with them to communicate experiences and to learn the way of God more perfectly, to pray for a blessing on his future ministry, and to praise Christ Jesus for what he had done for their souls. Saul, perhaps, had sat certain years at the feet of Gamaliel, but undoubtedly learnt more these certain days than he had learnt before in all his life. It pleases me to think now this great scholar is transformed by the renewing of his mind. What a mighty change was here! That so great a man as Saul was, both as to his station in life and internal qualifications, and such a bitter enemy to the Christians. For him, I say, to go and be certain days with the people of this mad way, and to sit quietly and be taught of illiterate men, as many of these disciples we may be sure were. What a substantial proof was this of the reality of his conversion. What a hurry and confusion may we suppose the chief priests now were in. I warrant they were ready to cry out, What? Is he also deceived? As for the common people, who knew not the law and are accursed, for them to be carried away is no such wonder, but for a man bred up at the feet of Gamaliel, for such a scholar, such an enemy to the cause as Saul, for him to be led away with a company of silly, deceived men and women, surely it is impossible. We cannot believe it. But Saul soon convinces them of the reality of his becoming a fool for Christ sake, for straightway, instead of going to deliver the letters from the high priests, as they expected, in order to bring the disciples that were at Damascus bound to Jerusalem, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. 
This was another proof of his being converted. He not only conversed with Christians in private, but he preached Christ publicly in the synagogues. Especially, he insisted on the divinity of our Lord, proving, notwithstanding his state of humiliation, that he was really the Son of God. But why did Saul preach Christ thus? because he had felt the power of Christ upon his own soul. And here is the reason why Christ is so seldom preached and his divinity so slightly insisted on in the synagogues because the generality of those that pretend to preach him never felt a saving work of conversion upon their own souls. How can they preach unless they are first taught of and then sent by God. Saul did not preach Christ before he knew him. No more should anyone else. An unconverted minister, though he could speak with the tongues of men and angels, will be but as a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal to those whose senses are exercised to discern spiritual things. Ministers that are unconverted may talk and declaim of Christ and prove from books that he is the Son of God, but they cannot preach with the demonstration of the Spirit and with power unless they preach from experience and have had a proof of his divinity by a work of grace wrought upon their own souls. God forgive those who lay hands on an unconverted man, knowing that he is such. I would not do it for a thousand worlds. Lord Jesus, keep thy own faithful servants pure, and let them not be then partakers of other men's sins. Such an instance as was Saul's conversion, we may be assured, must take a great deal of noise, and therefore no wonder we are told, verse 21, but all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them who called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Thus it will be with all that appear publicly for Jesus Christ. And it is as impossible for a true Christian to be hid as a city built upon a hill. Brethren, if you are faithful too, you must be reproached and have remarks made on you for Christ, especially if you have been remarkably wicked before your conversion. Your friends say, is not this he or she who a little while ago would run to as great excess of riot and vanity as the worst of us all? What has turned your brain? Or if you have been close, false, formal hypocrites, as Saul was, they will wonder that you should be so deceived as to think you were not in a safe state before. No doubt, numbers were surprised to hear Saul, who was touching the law blameless, affirm that he was in a damnable condition, as in all probability he did a few days before. Brethren, you must expect to meet with many such difficulties as these. 
The scourge of the tongue is generally the first cross we are called to bear for the sake of Christ. Let not, therefore, this move you. It did not intimidate. No, it rather encouraged Saul, says the text. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Opposition never yet did, nor ever will hurt a sincere convert. Nothing like opposition to make a man of God perfect. None but a hireling who careth not for the sheep will be affrighted at the approach or barking of wolves. Christ's ministers are as bold as lions. It is not for such men as they to flee. And therefore, that I may draw towards a conclusion, let the ministers and disciples of Christ learn from Saul not to fear men or their revilings, but like him, increase in strength. The more wicked men endeavor to weaken their hands, we cannot be Christians without being opposed. No, disciples in general must suffer. Ministers in particular must suffer great things. But let not this move any of us from our steadfastness in the gospel. He that stood by and strengthened Saul will also stand by and strengthen us. He is a God, mighty to save all that put their trust in him. If we look up with an eye of faith, we as well as the first martyr, St. Stephen, may see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, ready to assist and protect us. Though the Lord's seat is in heaven, yet he has respect to his saints in an especial manner when suffering here on earth. Then the Spirit of Christ and of glory rests upon their souls. And if I may speak my own experience, I never enjoy more rich communications from God than when despised and rejected of men for the sake of Jesus Christ. However little they may design it, my enemies are my greatest friends. What I most fear is a calm, but the enmity which is in the hearts of natural men against Christ will not suffer them to be quiet long. No, as I hope the work of God will increase, so the rage of men and devils will increase also. Let us put on, therefore, the whole armor of God. Let us not fear the face of men. Let us fear him only who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I say unto you, let us fear him alone. You see how soon God can stop the fury of his enemies. You have just now heard of a proud, powerful zealot stopped in his full career, struck down to the earth with a light from heaven, converted by the almighty power of efficacious grace, and thereupon zealously promoting, nay, resolutely suffering for the faith which wants with threatenings and slaughters he endeavored to destroy. 
Let this teach us to pity and pray for our Lord's most inveterate enemies. Who knows, but in answer hereunto, our Lord may give them repentance unto life. Most think that Christ had respect unto Stephen's prayer when he converted Saul. Perhaps for this reason, God suffers his adversaries to go on, that his goodness and power may shine more bright in their conversion. But let not the persecutors of Christ take encouragement from this to continue in their opposition. Remember, though Saul was converted, yet the high priest and Saul's companions were left dead in trespasses and sins. And if this should be your case, you will of all men be most miserable, for persecutors have the lowest place in hell. And if Saul was struck to the earth by a light from heaven, how will you be able to stand before Jesus Christ when he comes in terrible majesty to take vengeance on all those who have persecuted his gospel then the question, why persecuted thou me, will cut you through and through. The secret enmity of your hearts shall be then detected before men and angels, and you shall be doomed to dwell in the blackness of darkness forevermore. Kiss the Son, therefore, lest he be angry. For even you may yet find mercy if you believe on the Son of God. Though you persecute him, yet he will be your Jesus. I cannot despair of any of you when I find a Saul among the disciples at Damascus. What though your sins are as scarlet, the blood of Christ shall wash them as white as snow. Having much to be forgiven, despair not, only believe. And like Saul, of whom I have now been speaking, love much. He counted himself the chiefest sinner of all, and therefore labored more abundantly than all. Who is there among you fearing the Lord? Whose hearts hath the Lord now opened to hearken to the voice of his poor unworthy servant? Surely the Lord will not let me preach in vain. Who is the happy soul that is this day to be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will no poor sinner take encouragement from Saul to come to Jesus Christ? You are all thronging round, but which of you will touch the Lord Jesus? What a comfort will it be to Saul and to your own souls when you meet him in heaven to tell him that hearing of him was a means under God of your own conversion. Doubtless, it was written for the encouragement of all poor returning sinners. He himself tells us so. For in me God showed all longsuffering that I might be an example to them that should hereafter believe. Were Saul here himself, he would tell you so. Indeed, he would. But being dead, by this account of his conversion... He yet speaketh. Oh, that God may speak by it to your hearts. Oh, that the arrows of God might this day stick fast in your souls, and you be made to cry out, Who art thou, Lord? Are there any such amongst you? 
Methinks I feel something of what this Saul felt when he said, I travail in birth again for you till Christ be formed again in your hearts. Oh, come. Come away to Jesus, on whom Saul believed, and then I care not if the high priests issue out never so many writs or injuriously drag me to a prison. The thoughts of being instrumental in saving you will make me sing praises even at midnight, and I know you will be my joy and crown of rejoicing when I am delivered from this earthly prison and meet you in the kingdom of God hereafter. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.